So we're going to start the second half with, uh, again, Susan, because she came all the way from Clonakilty and Dee Newell. Please give him a round of applause. <laughs> now, so you met Susan earlier on. Um, this is Dee Newell. Um, no, no, that's not Dee Newell. That's Susan. That's not Dee Newell either. Oh. So anyway, Dee... Um, likes to swim a lot. And I uh, don't know if you can read it, but that's D swimming. And she, that's what the few things she did. She completed the English Channel solo this year, last year, sorry, in 14 hours and 54 minutes. <laughs> uh, swam across uh, the Irish Sea with another, s was it six people, six people? for the Gavin Glynn Foundation last year. And she swam the, uh, the oldest uh, open water swim, which when I researched, it was all to do with Lord Byron. He swam across in 1810, the 3rd of May. Now, Lord Byron loved opium and uh, Loudon. And <laughs> why did you do it? Um, I did that swim, actually, when I was on leave. I was overseas, so it was just... It was easy to get to Istanbul to make my way down to where the start point was for that swim. Um, and it was around, I think it was around 6K was my track. And that was a doable swim for me with no training because I was in a military camp in on the Israeli side of the Golan Heights. Um, and it was just before I moved back to Syria. So no swimming pool, <laughs> um, no training. But... And it is the oldest because it links Europe to Asia, am I right? Yeah, yeah, but it's, um, I think it's the, it's the oldest recorded open water swim, and he actually did it heads up breaststroke. So we have Claire Ryan in the audience, who is our Irish heads up breaststroke ice swimmer. Sorry, what is, what is it? Heads up breaststroke is just, um, it used to be ungentlemanly to swim overarm, which is also the same stroke that the first English Channel was done in. Um, so it's, Basically, like the the nice way to swim when you're having the chat with the girls and you're swimming along and yeah. your head doesn't go in the water and it's lovely. <laughs> um, it's a sociable swim, so that was the way the the swim was done then. So we we've been talking about this lovely community swimming. We all get in. I am well known for walking on water because I get in and out and so quick that <laughs> you don't even see me getting in. But 15 hours or whatever, 14. Point fifty four minutes hours swimming. For those that don't know, you're not allowed to touch the boat. You have to eat and drink everything while swimming. So tell us a bit about that. Um, I'm I'm used to the the long distance now, and I think um, I think it comes you, there there comes a point in what you're doing. So for me, it's like once I do the first two hours for the longer swims, I know that I'm fine, and I just get into the mode thereafter. But when I did the um, Galway Bay swim in 2016, even though I had done it before in 2012, when I did it in 2012, I had no idea how that was going to go. Um, I was real novice to open water long distance at that point. But when I did it in 2016, there's the first 2K stretch, you make your way to the boat. So a group of people start on the shore of um, Achenish over in Clare. Um, and you're swimming to your your there's a kayak in front, but like everyone is going a bit all over the place because 
you don't really know where you're going um, and you're trying to pick out your boat then in a whole flotilla of boats. So that's when I remember being like, why am I here? Like, I often, you often have these moments, what have I done in my life to find myself here? And <laughs> you, you, a lot of these events you, you pay to, for the glory of being there. And you're like, what have I done? But um, this one, the Galway Bay Swim is special to me. It's for Cancer Care West. And at the time, my sister's friend was going through quite a tough time with cancer. Um, and she died after the fact, you know, and I kind of said, she has no choice in what she's doing. I'm here by choice and, you know, arm over arm and just get it done. And it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes thoughts like that is, is what will pass that little bump that you're having. Um, there's always someone worse off. For the English Channel Swim, my someone that was worse off was someone doing the Enduro Man. So they had ran from London. We're now going to swim the English Channel without a wetsuit. Because um, with the Enduro Man, you have an option of wearing a wetsuit. So I saw him hobble down to his boat um, at midnight. And then once he finished, he had to get on a bike and cycle to Paris. So I was like, well, he's worse off than me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, tell me, the, like 15 hours is a long time for anything, right? Yeah. Um, but 15, hour, 15 hours on your own, did you break it into little chunks? Did you, like, was it every few minutes? I know you had to stop and eat every so often. How did you survive 15 hours on your own, talking I, to yourself? Yeah, I fed every hour, so... Um, I was actually quite lucky with the swim. It was exactly the way anyone would picture it. Um, when I got there, everyone was starting their swim at night. So I had decided starting your swim at night is the best way to do it because the dawn will come, you'll see a sunrise, um, and it's a new day. And hopefully you won't swim into the darkness again based on the timings. Y you would hope that that's not what's going to happen. So I had those chunks broken down. Um, Going into that swim, the longest individual swim I had done was six hours. Um, usually before the English Channel, you'll do uh, two back-to-back -back training sessions, which will be six hours and six hours or six hours and seven hours. For me, it was six hours and six hours because I was in the middle of doing a meditation training or like a, a workshop with a friend, um, and it was in Wales. So it was basically time-constrained that we could only manage six hours before we had to get on the road and get down to the Bracken Beacons from North Wales. So um, for me, like I was, because I was feeding every hour, I knew when I got to six hours, it was like, okay, open territory. I didn't think I had an affiliation to 10 hours, but I did because I'd failed a 10-hour swim earlier in the year. Um, so when I got to that 10 hours, it was like celebration. Um, but I just... Because I had done, because I needed to do so much meditation, because I, um, I don't know what I say, I'm a high achiever, but I certainly have complexes about myself, and I um, get very stressed out in work, and I'd let myself go to burnout point in April before the 10-hour swim. So it was at that point my friend, who was supposed to be on the boat with me, she kicked in, and she was like, we need to talk to Jim, a guy who we'd met on a training camp, and she was like, he, you need to speak to him, because he had military service in his past and he had a breaking point in his past and now he's a chiropractor and he does a lot of meditation and he does meditation workshops. Well, I didn't think I should ring Jim myself so Andrea arranged this in the background and uh, an hour Skype call with Jim and it settled my head enough. Then we went over and we did the workshop with him and I had a recording of his meditation. I listened to it every day I'd get highly strung and forget to listen to it. And Brian, my boyfriend who's down there, he'd say, Dee, put your phone down and do your meditation. You know, and 
what I was meditating on, it was a change meditation. What I was meditating on was enjoy it because you've waited so bloody long to do it. So many people arrive over to Dover and they don't get to do it because the wind blows up or the, the weather kicks off. So you grab the opportunity and you enjoy it. And I had told myself that so much in this meditation that no matter what had happened, I was going to enjoy it. And I really did enjoy it. And if they had said to me, you have to swim back to England afterwards, I genuinely was like, yeah, fine, I'll do that because <laughs> I really loved being in the water, you know, and I'm delighted that I can say that because I know a lot of people, their stories of endurance swims are like, it was awful and I just wanted it to be over and I'm so glad I did it. But like, it's, it's an experience and I just wanted to enjoy it and I did. Great. So speaking of endurance, Susan, uh, we are going to talk about swimming again in a minute, but Susan doesn't do endurance swimming, but she does everything else is endurance. You did a number of marathons, uh, 72 marathons the last time I spoke to you? Y yeah, 75. Oh, sorry, 75. Yeah, that was last year. So, so yeah. you did three since I last met you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know, I couldn't remember many. No, I, I was trying to find out a lot of ultras. So a lot of running. What's, like, what's it like, endurance-wise? Based on what Dee will say about the 15-hour swim, tell me about your story. Well, I think I, can I, I'm going to come back to the sea first. So Go when I it. was when I was three, I decided I was going to be a marine biologist, and that was it. My entire life was going to revolve around the sea, and it has. Everything is about the sea. My job is about the sea. I eat tons of stuff from the sea. I I live around Shh, the sea. Full of the 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 running the the <laughs> the running was never in the plan. Um, I used to cycle in that work, and I worked in a fisheries college teaching fishermen how to survive in the sea. And one day my bike got a puncture, so I ran in to work, and I thought, God, that wasn't too bad. And I said, God, I'd like to do a bit more running. And there was a book called The Non-Runner's Marathon Guide. And it said, anyone can run a marathon in 14 weeks. And I thought, nah, they can't. And 14 weeks later, and I was still feeding the, one of the kids, um, I ran the Dublin Marathon. And, and I just absolutely loved it. Um, so I would um, head off, um, get up early and go out running. And then it was never part of the plan. And then I'd see there'd be an event coming up. And in the same way as Dee is doing it, or anyone who goes into endurance, endurance, everybody's body can be built up to endurance events. So we can all, everyone here can run a marathon. Anybody can run a marathon. Anybody can do the training. And I would say would 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 potentially be able to swim the channel. I haven't swum the channel, so that might be lessening the and thing. Could but do the channel. <laughs> yeah. So all you need is a training plan. And with marathon running, you know, each week, anyone here who's done Ironman or done marathons, each week you just add on an extra, you know, mile or two on your, on your long run, and then you build it up. But really what it's about is all of the other stuff. So it's about making sure you're eating properly, you're sleeping properly, and then it's what you eat. Like anyone here who's run a marathon and has eaten food they haven't eaten before. I remember I was doing the Dingle Marathon one day and I, I took a Lucozade gel that was being handed out for free and then puked for the last bit. So with the ultra marathons, then when you're building up to the longer distance, it's really just about time and it's about minding your feet and it's about 
watch you eat. And that's great fun as well, because you go on runs and you try baby food. You were probably exactly the same with the feeding going across the channel. And you try different things because everyone is different. And, and the other one was the footwear. So in that picture there, you probably can't see it. I'm coming up. This was the Kerryway Ultra. So it was a 200 kilometer run. And you don't sleep. You, you just run. And this is coming up. I, there was two Israeli special forces guys who were running, okay? And I overtook them. And I, 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 had, I had given birth to many children. And that look on my face, I didn't care how high the hill was. They were dying back behind me somewhere. And, and it was just euphoria. Sorry, yeah, yeah. The Israeli special forces were gone. Um, but the, the, the trail shoes, I wear barefoot running shoes. And that's been a great adventure as well, is going into those. But I'm not an award-winning a speedy person at all and um, and uh, far from it and I'm not built for that at all but it's just the proof you can do absolutely anything and the only one I really would like encourage people if you're having a break from the sea is people all head off um, to, 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 to do pilgrim paths abroad and in Ireland I didn't know about it but there's incredible pilgrim paths and my my mum had been ill she was an amazing woman and, and she passed away very peacefully but it was very there was a lot of noise coming up to the funeral and lots of people we'd about 25 people staying in the house and it was really noisy and so the day after her funeral I headed off and I did the pilgrim paths of Ireland running. I'm in Wikipedia as the fastest person to ever complete them. You don't expect that when you've been at a funeral. And it's just to encourage people, um, to encourage people. We've got these incredible paths in Ireland. There's one of the most amazing ones that have been around. It's, they're called pilgrim paths, but they've actually been around pre-Christianity. So there's one that goes from Ballantubber Abbey in Mayo up to Croke Patrick. And it's 42 kilometers roughly, I think. And it's absolutely amazing. And there's there's one that they're all over the country and there's a book describing them and you actually get a little passport that's stamped. But there's things like that. They're not races. It's like the sea swimming that you start to discover something about yourself or something about the country of Ireland that is so incredible and so special. So I've started to move, I suppose, into a different whole area where it's no longer about chasing medals. It's about what you find when you get there. It's no longer about the events or the races or anything like that it's a different a different stage um and and absolutely uh, anybody can do it great fun yeah i should say uh, john and susan have a few kids together they have seven so <laughs> it wasn't just leaving one child <laughs> she just went off left john home with seven kids and uh, came back a week later but that's fine i have an amazing husband he is wonderful um the next one then the Dee was talking about being in Syria. Dee's in the army. She's a captain in the Irish army. And we spoke for, for a podcast a few weeks ago, which is going to go out in a couple of days or so. But it, your experience in the army was that you, know, you weren't seen as a, a peer. You were just you were the girl there, just you know, dressed in, in an army gear. And then you swam the channel. And then everything was like, oh, that's awesome. So now you decide you're going to go and swim in Antarctica. Is that to go, right, now, what's it all about? I think I'm fully certifiable now with Antarctica. But, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, obviously, women are the minority in the Defence Forces. Um, and it's something that I, I have kind of struggled with. I joined the Army straight from school. Um, 
I initially started in the Navy and then I transferred back to the Army, so I had quite a long cadetship, 33 and a half months, I think it could be a record. Um, so I was commissioned with an Army class um, posted to Donegal, um, and Donegal in Finner, there was very few women up there. Um, but I suppose it's a complex that I took on myself because there's, there's other women now that I see that they're very much one of the lads and they don't really have the issue with it. But like we had, of a class of 52, we had 12 girls in the class and we became the females. Um, you know, and it's like the lads are in a half press up on the square and it's like, oh, we're waiting on the females. And, you know, it's like, we're, you're waiting on the females because you didn't tell the females that the parade time changed, you know. So it became this kind of thing. And, like, my class is a bit unique in that, that um, we just had that dynamic. There's, it's definitely not an ongoing thing or whatever. Um, and, you know, I've spoken to other girls, and it is something that I think as women, we sometimes feel that we're lesser. And I think Ruth mentioned it earlier on, finding your voice. I think I only found my voice in the Defence Forces when I was the operations officer in Undaf when we were doing a big move um, from one location to another. Um, and it was just a comment that people made to me when I came back off my leave. Um, they had they had just like a nickname on me that, you know, kind of like the real boss is back sort of thing. So I was like, God, I, I was really blown away by it because I was, I was like, do you, do you think that? Like... It's like, God, you know, but like people can say it to you so many times and like I've never had anyone say anything bad to me about the job that I've done. I've always gotten really good reports, but it's something that you hold on to yourself. And I suppose on my first overseas trip when I was 28, I think that was a turning point for me and that that's when I stopped kind of caring what people thought because I used to really take on what other women said and I was always worried about what people thought. Um, so when I was on that first overseas trip, that kind of solved that problem and then this is like a next step, you know, a few years later, a few more trips later, and then it's it's a new awakening that I'm like, well, you know, people actually respect me for my job. And then the channel came after that, and people people are like, because I went for um, selection, the Army Ranger Wing, which not many, well, no women had gone for it in about 15 years before I went for it. And then I'd actually convinced one of my friends to go with me. Um, like, and I hadn't put it out there. It's just I knew she'd always wanted to do it confided in her and then she confided in me a few months later that she was going to go for it as well so you know the reason I did that was somebody that I really respected and thought would have passed the course he lasted a small number of hours and I was like well you know what he had the balls to go down and do it um I may go and try it myself and I'm really glad that I did I wasn't successful I pulled myself off it um but it was all self-doubt you know I have no I've no doubt that it's your mind that gets you through these things so like the combination of doing these kind of things. Now a lot of people are like, oh, do you're like, you're just so fit and you could do anything. And it's like, well, I couldn't. But like, if but you no, want to think that. But you are, you are going to go and swim in Antarctica, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is quite an amazing thing. You're going with Jer Kennedy yeah. and uh, Una Campbell. I think she's from yeah. here. And there's 20 of you and it's, it's an exploration and you're going to be swimming. What's the... Uh, longitude, latitude, what? Oh, I actually don't know the answer. Anyway, you're way, <laughs> We're going way in the circle, it's like... You're in, inside a circle. Susan should know the answer. It doesn't <laughs> Susan matter. Susan knows everything. You're inside a... <laughs> Susan! <laughs> yeah, anyway, you're... It's a, it's a 69 degrees or something. Great. Uh, and Glad we cleared and that you're going to be swimming. It's ice swimming, so you're going to cut the eyes and swim in there. Well, what, so ice... The uh, definition of ice swimming is below five degrees. Yeah. Um with the IISA, which is the International Ice Swimming Association. So that's who will ratify the swims that we do. So um, 
it used to be a case that once you did a kilometer, you went on the history books, but now 500 meters has been brought in as a distance. So if you do 500 meters, you go on the record books. So once the water is below five degrees, but um, we won't be cutting ice in Antarctica. We'll okay. just, you know, it will be, there'll obviously be uh, icebergs. Um, and we'll swim close to them. But um, yeah, like, and I mean, if people have seen Lewis Pugh, who's amazing um, ambassador for the oceans, he's been in East Antarctica uh, just last week and he swam through, um, there's like a, basically a pathway through an iceberg that he swam in and he swam on a river on top of the iceberg. So phenomenal stuff. Um, but all of, you know, my main goal in like, obviously, it's really hard to swim in Antarctica. You have to get a lot of um, permissions. Jer Kennedy had, had organized this expedition and I jumped on it because it's such a good opportunity to raise um, climate awareness. And that's exactly what Lewis Pugh is doing, but like, it, there doesn't need to be just one person doing it. And um, if I can bring that message back from Antarctica with a couple of other things that I'm doing like that, that would be my real um, achievement. Um, I think it, coming back from there that I can talk firsthand about, well, I saw this, and this is the situation, so please wake up. Perfect. Which brings me to the next, the next uh, question for Susan. This thing is not great. <laughs> um, Susan, before we get the picture, uh, I'm reading this wonderful book by Ken O'Sullivan at the moment. Um, yeah, it's all about the sea around it. I think most people probably read it in here. But, and then there's some really scary... Um, things in it, you know, 70 million, uh, 70 to 100 million sharks being killed every year and so on and so forth. I know you don't really want to get into too much, but I just need to ask you, what's the state of the sea at the moment? Well, the sea, it joins all of us. So it's, it's a really, really difficult one. On land, normally where countries that you, you were traveling to, normally where there's boundaries, you've got land boundaries. In the sea, flows between all countries and all nations so it's 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 very very much and fish they don't know where you put in territories they like to swim some of them do massive migratory journeys and the the issue with this is when you want to look after the sea and you want to keep sustainability you have to do that with the fishermen you have to do that with with everybody who's linked in with the sea and my my day job um um, well, it's, it, I suppose my whole, my whole passion is I, I head up what's called the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority. So we look after all of the um, fishing that happens in Irish waters up to 200 miles off and every Irish vessel anywhere in the world that it is. We also make sure that all the seafood that you eat is safe and we look after all of the Irish seafood that's traded out of the country. So I get a, a lot of responsibility with this. So we have like, so for let's say sharks and shark finning. So shark finning is a horrific practice where you, you take a shark, you cut off the fins and then you throw it back into the sea so that um, it, it, it survives for a number of days with no fins. So we would have, um, with good work by the Naval Service and the Air Corps, we have had some really successful cases on shark finning. And there has been none of those vessels have come back into Irish waters. So I think in the cases with, with sharks and things like that, it's, it, it, we would have a zero, absolute zero tolerance policy in Ireland um, to make sure that some of the protected species we have. Because Ireland is really special. The, the la land area that we have, we've 10 times that under the water. But we don't just have land that's under the water. It'd be like having the best, most fertile seas because we have a huge continental shelf. So we have off Ireland the most 
absolutely rich fishing waters, but also rich waters that are full of land. But not also, if everybody in the room, actually, if you just take a deep breath, okay, go, <gasps> okay, and take another one. <sighs> the second breath you're taking is actually supplied by the seawater that's out there. The phytoplankton and things that we have in Ireland's waters is actually also supplying the oxygen that we're breathing on this island as well as all over the planet. So it's absolutely essential that we look after it, but we also have to get a balance because it's really essential that we have coastal communities and we have people who are living there and keeping a vibrancy going. And, and that's what we're working at. But things like those sharks, shark finning is an absolute no-go um, and zero, zero, minus zero tolerance to it. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, <clears throat> yeah, there's, uh, there's something like 1,300 uh, whales killed in Norway. But as you say, the, the whales could have left the west coast of Ireland, go to to Norway, and then been killed. Yeah. But what's what's everything, we do? even crabs and lobsters, <coughs> lobsters, right? <coughs> When the science on all of these species is amazing. So we look at whales, we look at the large animals we know, but lobsters, I remember we did a diving study once and we were tagging lobsters because they molt every year, they're very difficult. So we were diving in Loch Ine and we were marking, trying to tag the lobsters. And it was actually frightening because you were diving at night and you had a torch because the lobsters back into holes at night. And when you'd go down with your torch underwater and if there was a conger eel, I don't know, does anybody here know conger eels? They're horrible, sorry. I sh everything else in the sea I love apart from conger eels. <laughs> They've got hundreds of, you don't like conger eels either. Um, they grow up to two and a half meters long and they've got small enough mouths and they've got loads of tiny teeth and they don't have poison in the teeth but if they bite you um, they have like so much dead stuff between their teeth you're going to get a really nasty infection and they hold on and twist and twist and twist so when you go down at night if you get a conger eel in your torch if you take the torch away really fast it swims out and it'll actually break your, 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 your face mask. So I, I have all these memories with the lobsters and the conger eels of like holding the torch, my hand shaking, kind of moving it away because there'll be a conger eel backed into the hole instead of a lobster. But it turns out that the Irish lobsters, they don't, I thought, we all thought that they stayed in those holes and that's where they were, but they don't. They actually walk all the way around the coast of Ireland and they're just continuously marching. So this is like the whales moving or the mackerels moving, the, uh, the, the lobster move it and actually the Irish conger eels I had a poor friend who was doing a PhD on the conger eels and she was having a nightmare she could only ever find female conger eels she could never find any male conger eels and conger eels actually the reason that she couldn't find them was this incredible thing they actually don't grow above about that size they're tiny um, and the conger eels around Ireland they all live backed into the holes scaring us all so they're about eight or nine years old and then it's, it sounds like a really bad menopause but anyway they're, they, they, they're, so um, suddenly at about eight or nine years the sharp teeth start to fall out and they start to get wrinkly and they get this mad urge and they swim all the way to the Azores where they spawn and then the baby conger eels come all the way back to Ireland so everything in the sea is like it's, it's not how you think it is nothing, it, no, none of the life cycles, none of the life that we're looking at, none of it is simple. So there's this huge complex ecosystem that we're looking at and, and we don't understand any of it. We, we barely understand how 20 species of fish properly reproduce. We, the rest of it, we really just don't, we're just learning. So there's so much and that's why we have to be so careful because we don't actually know what impacts we're always having. And sometimes you think, oh, People understand everything, and it makes it simple, but there's so much more to learn. Wow. 
I better go back to swimming. I see a couple oh, of yes, people sorry, are getting sorry. fidgeting. Yeah. <laughs> my fishing one, yeah. So, if I get this picture, anyway, I want to go back to D for a second. Um, no, that was wonderful because it, it is part of what we're talking about tonight. But um, D, with going back to swimming, you know, with Susan talked about the importance of vitamin C earlier on and how wonderful it is for us getting into the sea, the snots and all of that. But once you're in the water for 15 hours and you're prepping so much, has it, any study been done about the effect of that? Is it good for you? Is it bad for you? Do you know? Any idea? How do you feel? There is, yeah, there's actually not a lot of studies. Um, I was doing a master's in nutrition alongside some of my training and um, I wanted to change my, so I ended up doing a postgrad because I never <coughs> got my final project handed in. So, um, yeah, I had tried to twist it to be relevant to me so that I might be able to get it done a bit easier. And this, this so, such limited research on cold water swimmers, um, endurance swimmers, there's more coming on stream now because the English Channel has gotten quite popular. Even there was a, a TV program about people doing a relay um, stand up to cancer this year. So it's becoming more popular, it's becoming more achievable. Um, it's becoming a bit like Everest where you think you throw the money down and you do the job. But like people do get sucked into, you know, people might do that, but then they quickly realize, no, I need to play ball and do the training. But in Dover, there's a great training group where you can actually fall in with a group and get the time done. And it's, it's like Susan said, um, anyone here can run a marathon. Anyone here, if you have the right advice and you listen to your body, which is a very important point because People will put everything down your neck and say you need to do it this way or the other way. Um, if you have, if you listen to your body and you figure out what works for you, you will get there. But um, I think yeah, there's there's, tra there's definitely more research coming down the line. But there's nothing really solid that you can go out and and look at it. Even we don't, you can't really say how much calories you burn when you swim because every swimmer is different. They have a different efficiency. Um, the temperature of the water is going to affect um, how much calories you're burning. And then, you know, the one thing you're always told is your body can only process 400 calories. So even if you can get your 1,000 calories in, um, you're not going to be able to, to match it up. So the nutrition of it is is so in the balance. And there's so much of it is... Um, it's the same with all nutrition studies. It's, it's kind of like people, the penny drops and people realize this works but then they follow it up with the science to try and figure out why it works. You know, there's so much about, it's, it's no more than there's so much we don't know about the sea, there's so much we don't know about the food and the natural life around us. You know, we just, we just don't know and we try and make the best assumption on it. Um, so I think, yeah, being in tune with your body is, is the best thing. And, you know, obviously a lot of swimmers will get shoulder problems, but it's, it's about looking after yourself. And um, I think more than any science will tell you, if you don't feel good doing it, don't do it. If you feel good doing it, do it. You know, keep doing it and do more. So after the, the channel, how long did you wait until you got back into the water? Um, I Just think physically, did you feel ready to go back in? Apart yeah, from a little splash? I, I got straight on the, on the road, actually. So I had the channel, because my, my window was the 22nd to the 30th of July, and I got blown out of that window. So... It was a bank holiday at home. It was a weekend and then into a bank holiday. So I'd explained in work, um, you know, if if I get going on, even if I got going on the Monday, um, I would have still been able to do it because obviously 
I was told in work, look, you've, you've, you've gotten over there and it's going to happen, so just stay as long as you need. But there was an end point that if it hadn't happened by then, I had to come back. And, you know, it was going to run into the next window. So um, I got straight on the road and came back. But I was, I was back in the water, I think, the next, you know, the next kind of reasonable day when I went, I, got, I had a day off work um, and then the next day I kind of got back to normal because the, the girls that I dipped with at the 40 foot, like they were dying to see me and they'd all been following it. And, you know, there's the whole, I was like an absolute celebrity at the 40 foot. <laughs> 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 and still people are like, oh, you're the girl who did the channel. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, yeah, it's me. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> but it's even in Greystones, so I'm not a I'm not a Greystones local, but I've come down a few times and everyone is like, Oh, it's Dee from the Sea and Dee from the Sea is on the channel and it's like, Whoa, these people they like they don't know me but they know me <laughs> you know, and it's just it's unreal. It's it's great. That's brilliant. Well, <clears throat> I wanna talk about safety for a second. And um Susan, we were talking about the other day on the phone um uh, about the wonderful things that are in the sea, but you know, without being too Facialistic, but you know there are dangers out there, and it's nice to get in for a dip. But tell us a bit about what's out there that it shouldn't get in to see. So this is a compass jellyfish. Okay, yeah, I and couldn't find a picture of the one you're okay. talking about. So this <laughs> compass jellyfish, it, it'll be like a little <coughs> nettle sting. Okay, so jellyfish are really stupid animals. Actually, the video you had earlier, they were dead jellyfish, but they don't know they're dead, so they still sting. Oh, they don't oh. actually have any brain whatsoever. So this compass jellyfish, if they're out there. You're going to, it's going to be annoying. You're going to have like a, a nettle sting thing. They're pain in the neck, but they're not a fatal. Uh, they're not fatal, but there are at times in Ireland, particularly with uh, before and around the big storms, we never ever had them before. Uh, there's been a thing called a Portuguese man of war. It's not actually a jellyfish. It's actually, and this is the sea again. It's actually a number of animals living in a symbiotic relationship that managed to create this extremely toxic floating animal. So the Portuguese men of war come in in huge numbers. They're just, they're the main thing. If they're there on the beach, it's not advisable to go swimming. And it's the kind of thing to say is, you know, if, if there's things like that, the sea will still be there. But if you go out and you get stung, Sometimes in colder water, it won't. It, you can be paralysed. It can be fatal. It's not a good idea. So, with those, you have to be sensible. And the other thing is with the weather conditions and the sea conditions. So many experienced fishermen that I've worked with ha ha haven't come back from trips to sea, and it's heartbreaking. And the sea is something that you can never turn your back on, and you can never, it's much stronger than any of us, and it's not always predictable. So it's to follow the, the, the safety guidelines. It, it, you're going into an environment, as you say, that isn't natural to us. Um, we need air to breathe. The cold deal, say more than this, can 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 affect us. And um, the first thing that happens when you start to get hypothermia is you don't think clearly, so you actually make really bad decisions. I'll keep swimming for another half an hour. So you need to be aware aware of that. The cold shock of jumping into the sea um, can be uh, ca it can have a, a massive impact um, on you as well. So it's to read up and to be sensible and to know yourself. But the other one, I, so I got on. I we've been doing loads of talks about sea swimming, and you kind of feel a responsibility because you want to say just you know 
be sensible. So I got on to John Leach, who's the head of the Irish Water Safety, and I said, what, what's the biggest issue and what are the guidelines and what should I be saying to sea swimmers? And his first thing, I just didn't expect it, okay, give a guess in your head, because we won't be able to get guesses from everyone, okay, because I bet you I did not get this right, okay? The first thing he came up with, okay, have a think. What do you think it was? Cold shock from jumping in or hypothermia or jellyfish or swimming on your own or no. He said, make sure you wear an orange swimming cap. And I was like, what? <laughs> I, and I, I didn't want to appear really stupid because I used to teach survival techniques and all these things to fishermen. I was going, oh my God, why? And he said, we're having, we're having a nightmare all over the country. He said, Arklo, the sea swimmers, it's a, one of the busiest shipping channels and they're out in front of the ships and no one can see them. And there was nearly a fatality of a ship running into a swimmer. It never even crossed my mind. So the orange swimming hat. It, so just to be aware that your head, when you're swimming, boats cannot see it. So that's another another area. But it, I, I'm not. Uh, you won't remember what I'm saying anyway. So I'm not going. You know. So you need to take personal responsibility. Look up the guidelines. Be sensible. Um, and and Dee will come in with loads more than that. But the sea is unforgiving. It, it never ever turn your back on the sea, and never ever forget that it it is potentially very dangerous. And the Portuguese men of war, if they're around, it's just not a good idea. Dee, you'll have more than me. Just um, on the orange hat. So whenever I'm swimming long distance, I will wear a tow float. So it's basically a blow up, brightly coloured bag. You put it on your your waist, so on a belt, and it comes along behind you. It's not a safety device for you if you drown. It is so that a boat will see you. Because even wearing a brightly colored swim hat, if there's any chop, you won't be seen. Um, and like I had, I'm I'm like a knacker in the water when when there's a boat or a jet ski or anything around me, I will scream and holler. And like it happened me in Bray, there was two jet skis and they, you don't, you have to have a license, but you don't have to have a license because nobody enforces it. So two jet skis and I'm screaming and shouting. Now, if I'm on my paddleboard, I'm like, hello, I'm a bit afraid to talk to people. But, you know, if it's, if it's me and my safety, I'll be waving my toe float and giving out. And I don't mind doing that because it's, it's too dangerous and it's too easy <coughs> that your head will just get a knock, you know. Um, and then for the cold, so somebody has said to me before, you're better to regret, it's better to come out thinking you could have done more than, you know, not come out at all, basically. So um, there's always going to be another day. There's always, going to, there's always going to be the option of, all right, I'll go and do that same loop that I did. I'll do that twice rather than, and I've seen it happen. It's one of my scariest <coughs> moments. There's two guys in Galway who are phenomenal, um, so friendly, will help you, um, you know, and they're just great, you know, they're just, just great community people. Um, the two, we have a swim in Galway from the, the diving tower, which was up on the screen, down to Palmer's. It's a 2K loop and everyone does it every Sunday and you do it a few times if you want or whatever you're doing. There was one Sunday, it was winter, and <coughs> I had had my swim. I think I did about a kilometre and the two guys had gone off and done this, but the tide in Galway can go a bit all over the place because there's a river mouth running in and it's a it's a closed bay and it just, you know, it's sometimes you can just get caught on it, but they were getting pushed further out and I I was like, they're not they're not moving. There's something wrong. Um really bothered about it, but no one was really worried because they're always there, they're always swimming. But I I was really, really worried. So I was seconds away from being 
you know, having brought myself back from my own hypothermia from swimming because it was winter, um, to getting the kayak out because we used to have a kayak left in the lifeguard shed. Um, so pulling the kayak out and going out to them when they did start making progress and coming in. But what had happened was uh, one of the guy's legs had just stopped working because the cold had affected them. And, you know, that can happen. And people think that you're, you know, I, I swim every day and blah, 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 all that. When it goes below 10 degrees, you should not be doing any more than an hour in the water. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can safely say we'll be, we'll be all right there. <laughs> so we're all safe at school, no worries. Sorry. But, <laughs> but, but no, just, just on that, just very quickly on the hypothermia. I just read, that like, you know, our body temperature is something like 36.5 to 37. Hypothermia is 35, so it's shown, it, and your body cools down for another 20 odd minutes after you come out of the water. So you really need to be careful. Like, don't go for two hours. I, mean, I just keep stick to half an hour, 45 minutes. But even it's the, it's, yeah. uh, <laughs> but no, it's the faff as well. So it's the, as much as the time you're spending in the water, if you don't get dry and, get changed and get yourself warmed up straight after. If you're standing and you're like, oh, I'll stand and have a cup of tea. Of course it's grand standing in my swimming togs having a cup of tea. It's not grand in the winter, you know, especially because wind chill is going to have a bigger impact than the water because some of the days you'll be swimming, it might be warmer in the water than it is out of the water. But your body, you lose um, body heat 25 times faster in the water than you do in the air. Um, so that is like, that's ripping the, the temperature out of you. What happens then is all your warm blood pools to your organs where it's needed. And then once you come out and you kind of start to normalize, that all settles out and you'll get an after drop from it. So that's when, if you've been in for a long time, the mad shivers will kick in. The thing with the shivers, if you're having the shivers, let them happen. That's your body warming itself up. Um, if you're feeling bad with shivers, have something sugary because you feed your shivers and you let them happen. And that's, you know, that's your kind of warm water or your cold water advice for okay. coming back from it. Thank you. So just another couple of questions and then whoever wants to ask you a question can. So this is kind of for both of you. Um, that's what some of the beaches look like now with the plastic and it's, it's kind of getting pretty out of hand. What's, what's your view on... Uh, What's your biggest concern and what are you doing about it? I know you're doing a lot of the swims to raise awareness, but what, what, I know you're very passionate about no plastic. Yeah, I think um, we're very sheltered in Ireland because we don't see it all the time. You go to Sri Lanka, you go to Bali, you go to some of these other countries and it's everywhere and you can't avoid it. And it's not that, it's not that we're using less plastic than they're using. It's just, it's the way the currents move. Um, and I'm sure Susan, you know, will have the same, you know, you should be able to talk a bit more technically than I can about the way the ocean currents move. But like, I remember uh, I used to dive up in Donegal Bay and I was always very much like Donegal Bay is so beautiful, so clean, there's never any rubbish. My friend owned a B&B &B in Donegal town and she would regularly tell me all of the waste of Donegal Bay would wash up on her front garden because that's the way the water moved up there. So we're quite sheltered from it. Um, I think a lot of us in Ireland, we don't realize we live on an island. Um, we don't realize that we could be a lot more self-sustaining as an island. Um, we're always looking out. And I'm 100% guilty of, like anyone who knows me a long time will know I've changed a lot over the few years. Um, especially in the last few years, I was a massive consumer and um, very prone to marketing the same as everyone else. I felt like I needed everything. My friend did a no shopping thing for a year 
in, I think it was 2017, so I think it might have been 2018 then, I said that I would do the same. Um, putting a no shopping ban on yourself just means that you actually really consciously think about what you need. Um, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, it kind of annoys me a bit that everyone has gone compostable. You know, it's like a, a takeaway cup. There's no need for bringing in these single-use solutions. All we need to do is use less and actually reuse the stuff that we have. Like, I'll, my granny, um, I'm a massive hoarder also because I never want to give anything, I never want to throw anything away because there can always be a use from it. And it stems back to my granny. Like, she had a tin with all the buttons, all the spare buttons, because you never know when you'll need a button and you never know where that button will be put to use. You know, and it's, that's only one example. It was the same with everything. Like, they obviously had much less. Um, I have accumulated an awful lot of more crap, so... Come to me if you want random things. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's just about being conscious about what you use. And like I'd always say, uh, reduce and reuse. But I'm a bit reluctant to say recycle. Like recycle yourself, but where does your recycling actually go? You know, always ask that question. Where does it go? And people can feel like, yeah, I, I'm I'm doing great things because I'm recycling everything. But like, where is your bin actually going to end up? So, yeah, no, that's fair enough. So for the purpose of this podcast, we sent uh, Susan to Sri Lanka. She's just back after 10 days. <laughs> and I'm not joking, that's yeah. the tan. Yeah. So Susan and John went to Sri Lanka. Yeah. What was it like? And did well, you see much plastic? Well, I suppose the first thing is the, the flight down there, I had a look at, you know, the carbon because I was there. I'm very conscious about that. So I should have... If I was buying it, it's 18 trees for the flight, but seaweed actually takes way more carbon out of the environment than trees do. So I'm actually just think a few seaweed lines and I'll be absolutely sorted. I, I think when I look, every single person can make decisions and can change what we're doing. But I know we've had an electric car for six years. And six years ago, when we first had an electric car, it was living hell because there was no charge points because we were reliant on the government to put in a structure and the structure was slow coming. And yes, I had to be towed by a large diesel tow truck and the man would look at me and, oh, it's you again. Um, and I'd be sitting by my Nissan Leaf. So the thing is that there's one thing which we can all do, which is personal responsibility. But I think the huge thing here, and for anyone who's in the public sector, thank you. Um, the other, the part of it is like, for one of the biggest differences that was made in Ireland was the plastic bag <laughs> ban. And that was a government ban that was brought in on plastic bags. And in, in Ireland as a country and across the world, we actually have incredible organizations that are leading the way on research. So in Ireland, we've got the Marine Institute. The Marine Institute is leading in mapping the undersea areas. The Marine Institute was one of the first places that discovered how bad microbeads were in, 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 in washing things. And then what they have been doing is suggesting to government, we need to ban these. You know, Ireland needs to bring in a ban. Ireland needs to bring in a ban on single-use coffee cups that aren't compostable. So there's, there's, as well as us making our decisions, none of us would have possibly totally removed using plastic bags if the plastic bag ban hadn't come in. So we have to have a way as a country that we actually make the decisions and make those brave decisions that are going to really make the differences going into the future. We provide proper public transport going in so we don't all have to drive everywhere. So we need to make sure 
that that we're constantly appreciating that and that unlike I we work with fisheries control agencies throughout the world incredible inc absolutely incredible people in Sri Lanka in Mauritius off the African countries up in Iceland in 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 all protecting all of the different seas around the world in the states that my friends in NOAA who are had incredible cases against fisheries but they also look after whales and wildlife they all went to work for three months and didn't get any pay none whatsoever because trump had done a uh, and i'm not anti any government but the american government had decided that they weren't going to fund um noah for, i i don't know the background to it we need to make sure that there's an appreciation of what's happening with the scientists in the state that that we keep leading on the way that we're going and that this kind of stuff that we see behind us that we actually like the plastic bag ban. We say it's not acceptable and we actually get rid of it. Because otherwise a few people will make the right choices and bring the cups. But if you can still go in and choose to buy something that's there, you're going to make those. So it's not that I'm saying we don't have personal responsibility. We really do. But we have to have a state solution as well. Okay. <clears throat> so... I was going to say tomorrow morning I'm going to go for a run and a swim, which is like 4K and uh, <laughs> three minutes. So I'm not doing that. What's your next, apart from Antarctic, what else are you going to do? What's your next challenge? Um, and so I'm going to ask like you the same, Susan. No, a bit like Susan, actually. So Susan talked about what we have here in Ireland. So everybody thinks for me the next natural progression is to do the seven oceans. Um, that's not my next natural progression. My next natural progression is I'm proud of where I'm from. So my next swim will be a swim from the Iron Islands in Galway into Galway Bay. It's not been done before, the particular route that I want to do. Um, it's longer than the English Channel. But Ireland is unbelievable for swimming in. So I want to promote Irish swims. And I will continue to do swims in Ireland that are badass, that are <laughs> will get us on the map. Like, why do I don't see a need why I need to jump on a plane and fly to Japan or fly to Hawaii and do one of the seven oceans because someone said they're the seven oceans. Um, I want to do swims in Ireland that will, you know, highlight how great Ireland is for swimming. Hello. Um, I think I have one more picture. Uh, when I was searching for Inchidoni Beach, that's the picture came up. Uh, no, it wasn't this one. It wasn't this one. It was uh, the next one, which is this one here. Uh, that's on, on TripAdvisor. <laughs> I'm not. I'm sorry. It wasn't TripAdvisor. So what are you gonna do, Susan? I, I'll move it on in a second. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's you, right? No, that is me. That is yeah, you. Eh? So what are you gonna do next? Um, the, the the I I suppose that one of the things that we all do all the time. I, I my biggest focus has been for a while is I, I keep working on my weaknesses. So the things that I am really bad at. So. I, I've been trying to address some different weaknesses. So I got really into running, and then I was running longer distances and with very bad form. So I've been working a huge amount over the last year and kind of getting a bit more balanced, so a bit more core. Um, I, when you run, you, you, you get... Um, you get 
massive muscles in some areas and tiny muscles in the other areas and I've been trying to balance it all up and working on that so really with me it's it, the, the next few months and the next six months I'm going to do some mountain running because I, I love that and I'll do the Karen Tool run and things like that but it's really about getting balance it's about working on the weaknesses because in the same way as when you're you're doing lots of swimming one bit is developed and another bit is underdeveloped and so it's it's all about balance life is about balance so I'm, I'm just my focus it sounds really weird is developing my weaknesses and, and getting a bit more balanced. Yeah. Sounds great. So what we might do, we might just get D to swim to, to goal where you can run across to goal to Dublin yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and promote it. Team. Yeah. Well, um, I think we're just going to open it to the rest of you. If anybody, I'm sure you have one or two questions for Susan or D. I hope you do. If you don't, anybody? There's one there. Keith down there. One second. Shout out there, Susan. Just an article I saw on television kind of scared me. Um, the marine mining for cobalt, where for the batteries for the electric cars, where they literally have these large machines that will actually go along the floor bed and just pick up all the minerals and completely destroy the path along the floor beds. We, well, we don't have any of that here, um, and I haven't, I haven't seen it. But yeah, as you say, there is, there's huge issues with the batteries that you know you keep hearing about the batteries and are the batteries right or not right and that's one of the things i don't know about it i don't i i genuinely don't i've ne i haven't seen that but again that's that that's the problem that's the question of the balance you want to get no emissions and people obviously want to travel but how do you get it so it's balanced and that's that's the key to, to, to the existence and if there was something like that the damage um, a seabed that has a very significant dredge over it will take a hundred years to come back to where it was to get the biodiversity back. So that if if that does occur, I don't I don't know about it. I haven't seen. I'm going to go off now quickly. John, are you googling <laughs> cobalt mining on the bottom of the ocean? Because I don't know much, but um, yeah. Um, uh, but I don't know. But anything like that, the the oceans, the oceans, the, the if if you take a small area and you do it, you might get a recovery area. But it is possible to have species collapse. It is possible to have sea area collapses. So I, I'll be reading up on that. But we don't have that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, anybody quick, else? Get rid of the electric car, bicycle. Yeah, bicycle. yeah. We're going back. Oh, yeah. to, we're going back to anybody else. Any questions? Anybody from? Anybody? Somebody there? And um, sorry, Pete. There's <coughs> yeah, it's um, it's warm feed. So I had lovely notions of I will do this on real food. I will not do it on powder food. So I did it on powder food because <laughs> you you've a very um, anytime I stopped for a feed, I was getting pushed back. So it, you know, and even for the food to digest in your stomach, you're you're not in a digestion position. You're usually sitting upright when you're eating. I was lying face down. So, um, yeah, I had a slow-release cornstarch. The brand name was Yukan. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's other brands out there. That's the one I used. Um, so I had that first, and that's kind of a, a heavier texture, so it was really easy going down. It was gloopy, but it was easy going down on my throat because when you're swimming for a long time in the salt water, your mouth starts to absorb the salt and can be quite painful. I had some mouthwash at five hours and again about 10 hours. So that actually cleared the salt from my mouth, which meant I was able to eat solid food the next day. 
Um, my second feed was a glucose fructose mix. So that was a bit more severe on, uh, it was just a bit of a sharper, a sharper kind of texture going in that I hadn't really accounted for with the salt. So I was going every second feed because I was getting a different type of nutrition in each hour. And that meant that I wasn't going to shut down a pathway. I had fructose, glucose, and I had the slow-release cornstarch as well going in. But like I, I had lovely notions of I'll do this on, um, you know, I'll have coconut oil and I'll have whatever, you know, it just it didn't work. I did like I did an Ironman on, on that before um, and it worked because you can sit on the bike and you can eat. But face down, it, for me, it didn't work. I'm sure other people have, you know, someone might have managed it. But <laughs> I wasn't taking the risk on actually getting to the end point, you know, on trying to be a hero with the food. Anyone else? Anyone else? Okay, if there's no more questions. Um, oh, there is one more question. Sorry, Pete, just behind the, the, There's two microphones. <coughs> I, sorry, this one's for G as well. Um, just a question about the whole the nutrition part as well and talking about kind of the effects on the climate. In terms of, I know there's a lot of talk around how vegan diets are better for for the environment, but you know, would you have any advice around around that whole part of it. Yeah, um, I used, so <laughs> in my speculative past, I was a bodybuilder and a powerlifter at one point in my life. So I thought, you know, protein is king, get all the protein in. Um, then I went and I did my yoga teacher training in India, where I was living a vegan lifestyle imposed for the, the month that I was there training. I maintained a vegetarian diet for 18 months after that. The only reason I changed was because I went on selection and I wasn't going to be the odd, you know, I couldn't be the odd one out saying, excuse me, where's my vegetarian food? Um, so I didn't lose any muscle mass. I didn't have any issues being a vegetarian. And I'd always said, if you're going to be a vegetarian, you have to be an incredibly intelligent vegetarian and you have to, you know, know all your, because you can get all of your, your you know, all your amino acids are in your vegetables. So I had this thought that you needed to be very intelligent and really plan your food very well so that you got your full spectrum of amino acids and you're able to build up your proteins. I was not an intelligent vegetarian and I ate whatever was easy. I ate a lot of chips, um, but I didn't lose any muscle mass or performance. So I think, you know, it's, it's about what works for your body. Um, some people need protein. Some, you know, um, some people need even to have a day as in animal protein. Some people feel like that their, their body need that to function, but like obviously, the guys have been vegan for how long and, you know, functioning optimally. And a lot of people will function optimally vegan. So it's, it's about testing. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of done an awful lot of different sports and done an awful lot of different playing around with, with my nutrition. Um, and it is, it's just testing out what works for your body. Okay. Uh, anybody else? So that's it, we wrap it up. Oh, somebody at the back there. This is a question for Susan. Um, when is your book coming out? And if you are not <laughs> writing one, why aren't you writing one? Or are you doing a series for RTE? Or <laughs> you need to share that information you have. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I have written a book. I just need a publisher. So if there's any publishers in the audience, um, yeah, and they actually called it... They called the series Vitamin C, that was what the book was called. So yeah, no, it's already there, it's ready. I just haven't got as far as getting it to a publisher. So yeah, if there's anybody who wants to publish 
lovely book. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I meant to say at the beginning, vitamin C, um, there was an RTE program last year, it was based on, uh, on the conversation we had, vitamin C. Um, so yes, yeah, Susan kind of devised that name. So well, it was around, yeah, but you kind of moved it on, moved it on to the, so anyway, we'll get your publisher. So I hope, uh, <coughs> <laughs> <coughs> I hope uh, I, got, I got loads out of this conversation. So now I know tomorrow morning I'm going to meet with Susan and the Happy Pair. We're going to start to create these little vials and we're going to sell them for about 40 <laughs> quid with a Happy Pair <laughs> water, seawater. Yeah. Uh, and uh, no, but it has been great and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thanks, Amelia, for D, Newell and Susan Steele for, for their time. And uh, that's about it. That's all I have time for. So thanks, Amelia, for coming, and I hope you enjoyed it. Take care.